And welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast, Jeff. Hello, Patrick. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Welcome home, Jeff. Thank you. You're my, finally finished with the grand tour of the Beer Bible. My peripatetic ways are done. I'm back here in lovely Portland, Oregon, uh, just in time for the, the rain and the cold and the dark. Yes, yes, we've prepared nice weather for you. Uh, with me, of course, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of The Beer Bible uh, from Workman Publishing and Cider Made Simple from uh, Chronicle Books. Uh, both are out now. Uh, you can also uh, find Jeff uh, blogging at uh, Beervana blog and at uh, the um, All About Beer uh, magazine. That's right. And with me is Patrick Emerson, who is a uh, professor of economics at Portland, at, not at Portland State University, at Oregon State University, which is an entirely different place. Uh, and he is a research fellow at uh, C-Micro in Sao Paulo. And also, what's the place in, in Bonn that you're a research fellow? The Institute for the Study of Labor. Uh, oh, very which cool. In which the acronym um, in the German is IZA. IZA, C-Micro and IZA. That's right. For all you out there in the uh, deeply embedded in the world of developmental economics, you'll know exactly what those mean. Easy to remember. Uh, so this week we have a couple of uh, new things on tap. Um, uh, we're going to start to add a little extra structure to the pod in an attempt to try to uh, make it a little less monotonous. Um, so we're going to have three new regular features now uh, in our pod. The first is um, a... Uh, intro news and comment uh, section uh, where we discuss the, the, the beery news, the news from the beer biz, news from the beer world. Right. Uh, and then at the end, we have um, two features that we're going to start doing regularly. One is to dip into the mailbag uh, where we answer any questions, um, not, not necessarily about the topic of the current pod, but any questions you have about beer and beer business. Yeah, that mailbag is getting heavy, as I understand. We need Need to do some work uh, <laughs> clearing out the clearing, mailbag. Clearing that out. Uh, sucker out. Yeah, you need to uh, you need to find us uh, or send your mailbag questions in um, at the underscore beer axe at yahoo.com is where you can send your mailbag contributions. And uh, we would love this to be a little bit of a conversation. So uh, it would be great if you send us your thoughts, and it can be about any topic related to beer uh, or the economics of beer. We are interested in your ideas and uh, having a conversation. So send us an email. That's right. And then the last uh, feature that we're going to start doing regularly is uh, what Jeff uh, coined long ago as the Beer Sherpa, which is uh, recommendations uh, for you, uh, beers from each of us um, that we will end the podcast on. So uh, the weather has turned. You've come back from your trip from the south back to the cold, dark, wet days of fall and winter in the Pacific Northwest, yep. and that turns our attention to winter beers. Yes. Uh, before we do that, are we doing our news roundup? We are. Oh, okay. Uh, so today's podcast is about uh, winter beers, uh, and uh, before we do that, as you mentioned, we're, uh, we'll do our, new, our news roundup. So. <laughs> As you can see, we, we, haven't really, we haven't really practiced our new format. We're uh, still, still ironing out a few of the kinks here. In the, uh, we have a script, too, and you'd think that we would do better than this with our script. But uh, yeah, well, we went back and forth about whether we should introduce the topic of the pod first and then talk about the news, or we should talk about news and then introduce the topic of the pod. So I've introduced the topic of the pod, uh, and now we're going to do the news. Right, winter ales. We will be talking winter yeah. ales, and it's, uh, it'll be an exciting and, and riveting conversation, as always. That's right. So, so what's new in the news, Jeff? Well, I think everyone is uh, familiar with a really big headline uh, that that happened earlier this week. Um, 
Constellation Brands, which is a drinks company known mainly for uh, owning a bunch of wineries, uh, but they also do the importing for Modelo and Corona, mm-hmm. purchased Ballast Point, uh, a brewery in San Diego, which made in 2014 115,000 barrels. They purchased this brewery for $1 billion. $1 yeah. billion. Dollars. And that's what got the the uh, the Bureau Sphere or the the uh, beery Twitterverse uh, all a uh, all a uh, titter. Yeah, um, the, you, the one billion dollars is uh, is quite a hefty sum. It is. We were used to seeing uh, uh, buyouts at this point of craft breweries, but that is quite a large number, and a lot of discussion about whether that makes sense or what it what it implies. Yeah, and of course we don't know the 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 details of the deal. We're not exactly sure what what to make of the one billion dollars. But let's just talk about the 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 overall sort of business point here, which is that uh, Constellation Brands is buying and paying a, a lot of money uh, to buy an established but not uh, um, one of the biggest uh, craft brewers. What, what, what do you make of it? Yeah, well, we've been talking about this a lot online, and I think I'm actually in a little bit of a minority position here in that it seems to make sense to me if you, if you consider that uh, what Constellation wants to do is have a national brand immediately. They want to have a brand that can can be sold nationally, which is fairly hard to do in the craft sector. Uh, and that they are betting a lot of money, a billion dollars, uh, that the craft segment in the in the beer industry is going to be a pretty dominant one, and that this will, in the next uh, five or ten years, uh, you know, earn them uh, a major stake in that growing segment. Yeah, I think it's further evidence, if you needed any, that uh, the winds of change are upon us and that the big brewers understand that the market has fundamentally and forever changed. You were originally, you thought this, when we talked about this, you originally thought it made sense. And then uh, right before the pod started, you said you're a little confused about the whole thing. What what are your thoughts as you've thought, had a week to consider this? Well, uh, so my my first point was, and, and, and you made this uh, yourself as well, all about uh, beer blog, um, is that unlike Anheuser-Busch, which seems to be interested in potentially uh, sort of um, developing a whole sort of constellation of local and regional uh, brands and breweries, uh, this seems like defi- a definite play to, to get into craft beer, but to take it national. Um, I don't know, do you know how many states roughly uh, Ballast Point distributed in? No, I don't, but I know that when I was traveling on the East Coast, people were drinking it there, so it is that does have an East Coast. So, presence. so the brand, yeah, so the brand is established and it's and it's got a, a fairly big footprint. It's not one of the biggest, but it's clearly, I think, uh, an indication that they believe they could turn it into a major national brand uh, along the likes of w- with the likes of um, uh, Sam Adams, Sierra Nevada, um, right. uh, New Belgium, those kinds of uh, breweries. So. Um, so it made sense to me in the sense that it's been pretty clear, I think, for a long time to the big breweries that um, just uh, trying to create a craft beer brand um, out of nothing uh, doesn't work, or at least in their corporate structure doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so that makes sense. Yeah, what I was uh, mentioning to you is just the more I thought about the billion-dollar price tag, <laughs> it's hard to know exactly how to take that and what that really means. 
but a billion dollars an awful lot of money I, I what i said to you uh before we before we started recording the pod was give me a hundred million dollars and i bet in a couple of years i could build you a brand that's pretty close to balance point but maybe that's maybe that's not true and and, and uh they're not in the business of of taking a bet on a on a fledgling brand but but um sort of doubling down on an established brand so it'll we'll, be interesting to see how it plays out yeah we'll just see uh so what else we got the Anheuser-Busch acquisition of SAB Miller has preceded the deals was the deal was agreed to by the two companies. Right uh, now, the antitrust uh, uh, regulators are going to be looking at this, and we'll see what um, what they have to say. I have a feeling this will be interesting in terms of economics, because you know what you worry about is market concentration and uh, for um, the antitrust regulators, and they're trying to trying to basically determine whether this can be harm to consumers. I bet that the retail business and even the distribution business isn't going to be the big issue. I think it's probably, well, it could be the distributors are probably going to be more on the production side that they might, if they have an issue. But I think that there is so much, con what, what, what these big companies will say, and I believe the regulators will buy that, um, or they'll, they'll agree, is that there's so much retail con uh, competition now, um, largely coming from craft beer. That uh, and I made this point before that I don't think that the price you're going to see like a big price impact. I think yeah. that that's going to constrain their ability. So I think what regulators are going to be concerned about are distribution channels um, and uh, production a bit. And uh, AB, this this new giant company will have to spin off the um, uh, Miller Coors uh, part of the the company, which is the part that we have here in the United States. They right. will that will not be a part of this deal. So that. <clears throat> they will argue uh, this new this new company will argue that there will still be competition because their their direct competitors at uh, Miller Coors will be will be still in competition. So, right. Yeah, I think it'll probably pass. Um, I know our senator Ron Wyden is fighting it, and uh, our, you know, there are there are some forces against it, but it seems like it's probably going to go. Oh yeah, I mean, I, for sure, some version will pass. Um, what will happen is that the the lawyers and economists on one side will get together with the lawyers and economists on the other side, and they'll they'll reach some agreement, and it might uh, include the sale of a certain assets. Yeah. Um, this is what happened when the big oil companies merged, for example. It wasn't retail gas that they worried about, uh, but it was the the uh, refinery business that they worried about, and they made mm -hmm. they made some of the big oil companies sell off a few of their refineries when they when they merged. Right. Uh, what else? Well, we have uh, an interesting local story here. Um, General Distributors is one of the, the local uh, dis distributors of uh, beer and malt beverages. Um, they also do the alternatives, like ones we talked about in an earlier podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, their workers, uh, 80 workers, they have, uh, have, have voted to strike, and they are actually right now on strike, and the story is breaking today. Uh, and we don't know too much about it other than... Um, it's happening, and it's sort of an interesting thing, and a lot of people here locally are, are looking at it. It doesn't the, – the details don't seem that – we've heard – we've seen statements from both sides, and usually – Yeah, no way, no way to make any big judgment, but there are yeah. some interesting aspects of it. One uh, – they're, they're represented by the Teamsters, by the way, in full disclosure. I used to be a Teamster when I was a delivery person for UPS. Yeah, in full disclosure, I used to be a union guy for PSU, <laughs> and I was actually on a bargaining team representing a union, so – uh, we're, I guess un unusually we have uh, some labor background here at the table. Uh, so what, what's interesting to me is that the the sort of the there are a number of local independent distributors um, in the uh, Portland area, and there are a lot of 
beers and beer brands that to be distributed now. And I think that the the business of, of these independent distributors is going is going pretty well. And this is actually one of the things that I think about when I um, when people ask about these big mergers, whether I'm worried about distribution, I see these very successful small businesses locally uh, getting into it. So I have, I, I guess that's one of the reasons I've become more sanguine. But um, uh, but yeah, so it would be interesting to see whether this is sort of a general general trend. Um, I know that general distributors have talked about how they believe that they're paying above market wages um, mm -hmm. better than other distributors around. Uh, Teamsters clearly feel like um, they're being asked to to uh, make concessions that um, they're not willing to do so. So it'll be interesting to see how that yeah. all plays out. We'll just have to watch that one. Uh, what else? The Sierra Nevada releases Otra Vez. Yeah, and this was fascinating to me. Um, w one of the things, it's a Goza, and uh, one of the things that I discovered on my uh, circumambulation around this country is that everywhere I went, I saw a Goza. If I went to an ale house, they would have a Goza. Most of the breweries were making a, a Goza. This is the weirdest thing to me, that a Goza, the style... I still believe this style. It's like, to use a political analogy, this is the the uh, Donald Trump of beer styles. I keep waiting for it to fade, and it keeps not fading. Yeah, and yeah. It was sort of a big thing a few years ago, and I thought, okay, well, this will be over in a year or two. Yeah. Uh, but apparently not. In fact, this is going to be a year-round uh, beer for them. Yeah, and that's really unusual. Uh, I think Sierra Nevada is a conservative company. They do not introduce uh, frivolous beers in their full-time full lineup. They tend to really support their beer. So they believe that Goza is a serious style and that this will be a beer they'll be making for years. So that says something about Goza. Interesting. Have you had this? I have not had this one. Okay, we'll have to look for it. Yeah, we'll have to look for it. And lastly, oh yeah, the news that uh, Guinness is going to start uh, stop using uh, glass in their... Um, uh, and their brewing process. Caving to the vegan lobby. Caving to the vegan lobby. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, as you all know, uh, glass is uh, made from uh, fish bladder, and it has a hydrophilic or phobic or something attraction to yeast, and it helps pull yeast out of suspension. Yeah, it's, it's a clarifying agent. Clarifying agent. Put in there. So, uh, so there you go. So, so ve vegetarians and vegans, enjoy your Guinness guilt-free. There is no more uh, animal products involved in the making of that beer. Excellent. All right. Okay, so now we can move on. Although there are yeast. I know. There are yeast, and I don't know what people think about that. Can I've vegans, often wondered. Can vegans eat yeast? I don't know. Oh. I think it's like... I, We're in hey, Portland, Oregon. We should know all about... <laughs> we should. <laughs> about. To I'm, any sure vegan, is, I'm sure there are some vegans who decide that... Yeah, actually, and there there might be... Bill Schneller is a uh, a, a vegan beer drinker in town who I think may listen to our podcast from time to time. So, Bill Schneller, if you're listening... There you uh, go, mailbag. Yeah, ping us, Send and we'll us. we'll talk about your views on yeast and beer, uh, and whether that's kosher from the vegan lifestyle. And anyone else who wants to weigh in, please let us know at the mailbag. Okay, which is the underscore brx at yahoo.com. All yeah. right, uh, so let's get back to our to our topic of the week. Yeah, winter ales. Uh, of the week, I should say. Week. It's been like three or four weeks since our last pod, and that's all your fault for it, traveling so much. It is. We're we're gonna get back to our our once a fortnightly. So schedule. the days have become short. The the weather has turned cold, and here it's turned wet. Uh, and naturally, just as in the food world we might turn from light salads to heavy soups and stews, uh, in the beer world uh, you start seeing on shelves all of these things that call themselves some kinds of some kind of winter or holiday ale. Uh, and so we wanted to to talk about um, winter ales, holiday ales, uh, and uh, talk about both the origins and the style. So why don't you get us started by telling us where these things come from? Yeah, let's let's talk about a little bit of the history because this the the history is actually quite old. 
Um, let, we'll start off talking about the, the British Isles, uh, which many of the, the beers that we have here in the United States, the winter warmers and so on, uh, descend from that track. Mm -hmm. uh, it is an ancient uh, tradition to have Christmas or winter uh, warm spiritus uh, potions mm -hmm. to take off the chill. You remember that it wasn't very long ago what, that uh, we didn't have central heating and winters were cold and kind of brutal. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways to stay warm is to drink alcohol. And so yes. that was, that's been a long tradition. Um, one, one of the big traditions that uh, is wrapped up in, in this is, a, tr is a, a thing called a wassail, which people will have heard of, mm -hmm. which is um, a pre-Christian tradition that came from uh, the Scandinavian countries, possibly the Vikings. Um, the word wassail uh, is the Old Norse, comes from the Old Norse veshail, uh, of course, yeah. and I was picked up by the English, um, the like Middle English speakers, and they, I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's it's got those funny things that are hooked together. Those those, uh, uh, yeah, you know how to say that. Veshel. Veshel. <laughs> uh, that sounded good. It sounds. <laughs> it's like what Chaucer would have said, and it means. Something along the lines of uh, be healthy or be fortunate, good, good, you know, good wishes, good tidings, mm -hmm. and um, it went along with a tradition of of, of drinking these these strong uh, beverages over um, in the pre-Christian tradition. It was just I think probably had to do with the solstice, and then as the Christian tradition picked it up, it was Christmas and Twelfth Night mm -hmm. through New Year's Eve. Um, and they had these old things called uh, wassail bowls, and they used to put their, these things in there. And they would make really fascinating uh, beverages uh, in these in these things. Usually mulled. So another way to to warm is to warm up your your beverage. Right. Uh, and they were typically what we would think of now as sort of like beer cocktails. They were they were mulled um, dark ale. Usually, you when you mull a beer, you do not want to get it boiling because that will change the character of the hops and make them really bitter and gross. Mm -hmm. um, and they would put uh, typically like a little gin in there or a little rum or something like that. Um, they would often include uh, apples. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when they did, if they mashed the apples up and did an applesauce thing, it would, and then they heated it up, it would create the, it would, it would give a, uh, kind of quality of fluffiness, and they called that lamb's wool. It was a drink they had. There was a drink called Pearl, P-U-R-L, that was made with spices, uh, dark ale, and gin. Um, so to be clear, these these aren't an anything to do particularly with beer, but these are just warm winter drinks. They almost always had ale in them okay. as one of the components, um, but it would have other things too. And one of the more more common in ingredients was eggs, which goes to show how long ago this was. <laughs> and I think part of the, the, the thinking here was that you wanted to create a rich, luxurious kind of celebratory uh, dish. So you would right. use fairly precious ingredients that not even everybody would have access mm -hmm. to because right. these things are kind of expensive and right. we might have a access to liquor. It's either warming in two ways. Warming because they're alcohol, uh, they had alcohol in them and warming because they were often served warm. Right, exactly. Just like mulled wine. So we're going to break in here and uh, uh, Jeff... We had this uh, clip of audio that you that you found, actually not from your beer research, but from your cider research. That's right. The, the wassail tradition actually continues on in England, uh, not so much in the beer side, but in the cider side. They continue to do uh, this wassail tradition um, after uh, the new year. 
uh, and they do it out in the the uh, the orchards. They have a, a, a celebration, and I think this one is definitely uh, dates back to the pre-Christian times. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing research for my uh, cider book, I talked to Chris Hex, who's a cider maker in Somerset, and he had just hosted one of these wassails in his orchards, and he told me about it, and it's kind of charming and interesting, and I thought we should give that a listen. Okay, let's take a listen. Yeah, I think after Christmas, January comes in, and people's feeling a bit down, and wassail's coming on into this. Right. So I've read a little bit about that. What do you do at your wassail? Um, What happens? Well, there is a wassail song uh, which you sing and um, then a lot of the children brought along pots and pans that she bound together that's to frighten the sort of evil spirits away and then he fired like took my gun down to cover their chest put their shotguns down and he fired those up in there again that's to ward the evil spirits away and then he poured um, cider around the root of the tree and then he put um, to welcome in the the good spirits, you know. And then puts what else do you do? They put bread or toast up in the trees oh, for, the, for the robin. He's, <laughs> he's supposedly robin is um, good. He sort of looks, supposedly looks after the orchard, you know. That's right. Cool. But it's all dates back to sort of this sort of Saxon, sort of pagan. Right. That's what it all sort of stems back to. Yeah. Uh, so we have uh, a, a beer that comes kind of inspired by this tradition. I'd say. It, uh, in the American way, it's uh, you know we have a, a tendency to look back to old traditions and, and revive them for our own uses. So we have an Anchor uh, Christmas Ale here, which is a beer that they make every year and have made for forty odd years. Uh, and they change the recipe every year, and it is spiced, and it has it sort of uh, springs from this kind of sen- sense of warming. And, yeah. And so all. the so the sort of the winter beer tradition, as interpreted by American brewers. Uh, I guess would be characterized by a few things. Uh, the first is more of a malt forward uh, and sometimes darker malt uh, uh, approach. Right. Uh, higher alcohol. Absolutely. Uh, to add to the sort of warming and heavy characteristics of this, it tend to be darker and heavier. And then, yes, and then the use of spices is uh, quite typical. It is, and it's not something that uh, our our modern palates are always in love with. And I know that a lot of people are not into spiced ales, and, and many spiced ales I'm not into. I'm, another seasonal beer that comes out a little bit earlier than these uh, are the pumpkin ales. Right. Those have the pumpkin pie spices in them, and I am avowedly opposed to them. But I know, you know, different strokes. Many people love those beers. So Yeah, I'm not a big fan of those, but we should mention them in passing as another what's become uh, a bit of a fall, maybe a fall tradition, uh, I guess winter tradition as well. Um, you see a lot of these now. These pumpkin beers are quite popular, so you're in the minority. We are in the minority. We really are. Uh, but so are pumpkin spice lattes. And yeah. I don't need those either. So That's <laughs> true. It goes to show that humans do have this instinct towards uh, seasonal celebrations. You know, we like when the seasons come around, we like to, to eat and drink seasonally appropriate things, and we yeah. have forever. Yeah, my problem actually not. I mean, I like the idea that you use seasonal ingredients and you create seasonal uh, dishes. And in beer, this it's no different. And I think that's great. Uh, I think my objection more to the pumpkin spice is that the pumpkin spice doesn't to me seem a whole lot 
lot like pumpkin. Hmm. Uh, um, it seems like a good version of sort of pumpkin pie. But well, this uh, smells Christmassy. It's got, I think, uh, nutmeg. I pick up in the r the nose. Maybe that would make sense. Cinnamon. Mm -hmm. I don't know. They, the the nice the cool thing about uh, Anchor is they use a different recipe every year and they they don't tell you what's in it. So you, we're all left guessing. This is as dark as a porter, uh, and it's got a really nice dark head. Yes. Uh, and it poured out. It's it's only five and a half percent, but it looks to me like it's got a fair amount of residual sugar. It looks it poured out pretty thick, mm -hmm. um, which makes sense. I think you want not only do you want strong uh, alcohol beer, but some a little rib sticking. Yeah, I think the mouthfeel is important. For me, a good winter beer has a, a nice mouthfeel as mm. well that's sort of rich and... Oh, that's very nice, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's very very nice. Another another common characteristic of winter beers is um, the flavors of dark fruits or dried fruits. Mm -hmm. um, so you often get things like plum and cranberry Yeah. that um, brewers are going for. Yeah, this has a nice melange of... Um, uh, the spice, which is nicely understated, so it's not it's not super profound. Mm -hmm. um, the dark fruit flavors, which seem to come both from the malt and maybe even a little bit from the there might be some esters that are contributing to that. Yeah, and then and then it's got a nice bottom. It's got the base of uh, the nice roasty malt underneath it all. Yeah, definitely has a very a very uh, pronounced roast malt uh, um, profile. And then on top of that, yeah, I think it's a very nice deft use of, of, of spice. Yeah. Um, I tend to be pretty sensitive to spice. I, I do think, too. I think they've been, they've shown a very, uh, uh, an admirable restraint this year um, in the spice. Yeah. It, this is not the kind of beer that I would, it's like an, it's like good eggnog. Mm -hmm. You don't, during Christmas, you don't, the Christmas season, you don't just have eggnog all the time, but there are moments when you're feeling, you're feeling the season, you're feeling the spirit and you want to have something that really speaks to that so you have a kegnog this would be this is like the eggnog uh, beer i think it's really pleasant and it it's a nice beer for a moment yeah what's interesting about sort of winter beers is they can be they can be almost uh almost everything but the ones that are usually called uh christmas ales or uh winter ales um tend to have these sort of same uh general characteristics i don't think that all of them necessarily are so dark um there are some actually quite medium-bodied uh, winter ales as well, but uh, but this is a very good one. We have another one here. Uh, here in the Northwest, um, back in the, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, a fairly strong tradition of uh, beers that people just called winter warmers developed. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the, the kind of flagships of that trend was the one, one of the beers that I have here, which is uh, Deschutes Jubilee Ale. Mm -hmm. But... There were others. Full Sail uh, did Wassail, their beer Wassail, and uh, Pyramid did uh, Snowcap, and there were a bunch of breweries that made beers in, in what they, they called the winter warmer style, and I think when that came out, we didn't really know what that meant, but it, it all of these beers bear a fairly close resemblance. They're dark. Uh, Malt forward. Yeah. Tend to be higher alcohol. Uses some spice. And many of them feature some kind of uh, dark fruit, dried fruit. Yeah, and these, they're being uh, northwest. Uh, I get the sound of pouring here. Uh, they often have uh, some hop character mm -hmm. on top of it. And uh, Wassail, for example, has quite a bit yes. full sales, which is not surprising for a, a beer from that brewery. 
but I have I, these these beers came out when I first started drinking beer, mm-hmm. and I was at the start of my beer fandom. I was really into dark ales. I loved 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 stouts and porters, and winter warmers uh, were right up my alley. They were like a perfect beer, and they really seemed to capture the kind of qualities that you want in a Northwest beer when you're when it gets dark at 4:30 and it's 60% humidity and and 42 and raining all the time. You want yep. something that really warms you up and brings some rose to your cheeks and makes you feel you know it's like the hot chocolate of beer that's what yes. you want yeah so this the jubal is uh, quite a bit lighter than the uh christmas ale from anchor although it's quite uh dark it's uh dark brown reddish brown yeah um, ruby highlights ruby highlights thank you it's got a quite nice creamy head it's much less, there's much less spice on the nose. Yeah, I think this is not a spiced beer. It has not been spiced in the past. Um, this was a, it was a beer that uh, they, they, they roasted up about five years ago. They, they, they felt that the, uh, the palate had shifted over the course of years and they re- did a reboot. And I remember that first one that they did maybe five years ago and the reboot was really roasty and it was not my favorite, um, but it's kind of come a little bit more into balance. And I have not had the Jubal this year, so. Um, mm, that's try. nice, yes. The, there's, as you say, the, there's not uh, evidence of spice present, but there's quite a bit of uh, um, fruit yeah. coming through. Yeah, and it does have roast, but it is. And it's it is definitely not, a roast malt. The back is not as roasty as the as the anchor. Yeah, and it's not as roasty as I as that first year that I, I didn't, I wasn't excited. It reminds me of uh, roasted barley more than roast dark roast malt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got that kind of um, dry quality, mm-hmm. and uh, it adds a nice layer of uh, flavor. Yeah, it's a kind of a it's got a nice rich mouth feel. Yeah, um, they both do. Yeah, just exactly the sort of what potentially you want on a nice cold night. Yeah, and there are a lot of these out there, um, and. When you go to pubs, you'll often see these on tap, and I, I don't know. They're I I still, although I've broadened my palate, uh, these are still among my favorite beers, and I really I love a good Northwest winter warmer. Uh, it doesn't have to be from the Northwest, but um, winter warmer is just a wonderful style, I think. Yeah, yeah, I I think so too. There's another uh, uh, another local company um, that I I. I brought a bottle. I'm not going to open, but uh, just to talk about sort of other ways in which uh, people have interpreted. Maybe it's not really an interpretation, but but the types of beers that that uh, breweries are selling as winter beers. Um, uh, Ninkazi from Eugene has um, a beer they call Slayer, which is a dark double alt ale. Yeah. They don't actually call it a winter beer, but they they do. It is a seasonal release for them, and there is Santa Claus on. The yeah, and it's Slayer. It's it's. it's uh, Ninkasi has has done this in the past. They have a beer called Made in the Shade, which has the the font that uh, may um, yes Maiden, Iron Iron Maiden yeah. exactly Iron Maiden used. And this is Slayer, and it's uh, Slayer like a like the the sleigh that you would ride in the winter, um, but it is in the font of the yeah, heavy metal band Slayer. The, not to the heavy metal band. So um, that's what the the Slayer is all about. But yeah, it's a it's this is a wonderful beer. It's it's really rich and rounded. Um, it's based on Uruguay's uh, Stika Alt, their 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 doppel Stika, mm-hmm. um, and it has uh, uh, more more hop character than than the German. But 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 actually, uh, 
the ones made at Uruga uh, are dry hopped, so they are actually it's a pretty hoppy style there too. Oh, so it's uh, yeah, I, and I and I mentioned this um, just to just to suggest that I think that uh, this sort of ticks the boxes of what people tend to be selling as winter ales these days. Yeah, it's darker. It's more alcohol. This one's seven point two ABV, um, and it's sort of more malt forward. Yeah, I think. I think it's a and great. And it's excellent, by the way. It is I'm excellent. Gonna, I'm going to try it, try it today. But uh, ever since Minkasi released this, I've always been a big fan of it. They also have stouts are pretty common, and and I think Otis, if Otis is out all year, I don't notice it until the the winter anyway. It is out all year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I notice that. it in the winter, but it uh, is. Yeah. It is another really good. Yeah. It's a it's a beer that I don't actually prefer to drink much in the summer. Yeah. Uh, it's quite a rich. It's pretty. It's a pretty big stout, if I remember. Yeah, um, and it's very roasty. So it's, it's very roasty, but the oatmeal—it's uh, an oatmeal stout, and the, the oats really uh, um, help sort of balance the roast for me, make it make a really creamy mouthfeel. Yeah, um, it's another really good beer. It so, is. Uh, so that's the so these are sort of I don't know what American versions of using the Vassail tradition as kind of a I don't know a touchstone, not really. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's funny. But again, you know, the Americans may have picked up the English tradition in a way that the the English have sort of let it fall by the wayside. So we we seem to have more of this tradition of these winter ales than than England does now. Yeah, I was gonna say you don't you don't really find this as much. Um, although I imagine that it's probably coming if they're popular yeah. in the U.S., then they'll end up making a splash in England as well. But but yeah, uh, for example, when we we took our trip there, there wasn't a prevalence of winter ales at all no and we were there about this time mm -hmm. so yep. right about the same time of year okay so let's move across the pond now uh, yeah or not across the little channel i suppose <laughs> since we're already in england yes uh um over to belgium Why don't yeah. you tell us about this beer yes belgium has its own tradition of uh winter ales and it is even more uh it's even bigger deal in belgium than it is probably anywhere else in the world they're they're known as uh uh, Bière de Noël, beers, sometimes Bière de Iver, beers of winter. Mm -hmm. I may be pronouncing Iver. that wrong. Iver. Uh, unless, unless you're the Flemish, then I don't know. But. Yes, <laughs> well, and they probably have something like Bière de Bière de Unten Winter, something like that. <laughs> if it's in, uh, I, I'm sorry, all our Flemish speakers <laughs> out there. Uh, yes, it's in, it, it, um, but it is a long, long tradition. Uh, in 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 Belgium and and actually the French breweries do this too, and it looks quite a bit like the English tradition. They make stronger beers again, same same kind of instinct. You want to have warming, uh, and they are they typically are brown, which I think is there's something about brown malts that just seem more warming than than pale malts. And I don't that's a fascinating kind of psychological thing, but it it really speaks to me, and it and it seems like. We find that in country after country. Um, and then a really big thing is basically all the Belgian beers, the Bière de Noëls that I know of, are spiced. So spicing mm -hmm. is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting in the Belgian tradition when you spice a beer, uh, you get a different characteristic of the spicing because the beers are so much different. So you're dealing with bottle-conditioned beers that are yeast-forward. Mm -hmm. So they already have this florid display of esters and phenols, which track as... Uh, related to spice in the first place. So right. when you add spice, you can sometimes tuck them in in ways that they're not quite as obvious. Mm -hmm. um, it's not always so evident which spice you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they're very spicy and they feel like you can tell that they're spiced ales, but it's a little bit difficult to, to tell what mm -hmm. kind of spice they are. They also have this cool tradition in Belgium, and when I was when I was there again, 
we when after I left England, I went to Belgium. So, uh, in that same trip that Patrick just referenced, they have a a, a product called Glue Creek, which is uh, glue. I think is it means mold, and you can get this in the in the in the Grand uh, Places, the Grote Marts of places like. Uh, um, Bruges and, and Brussels, mm -hmm. they'll they'll serve this stuff. It's it's Creek, so it's a cherry beer right. that's mold, and um, they just serve it there, like in these things. It's just like a winter thing. It's like roasted chestnuts and Glue Creek. It's a it's just a thing that they have. Mm -hmm. So um, they still even have that mold tradition that continues. And uh, typical for mold beers, you know, they a, a Creek is a really good choice because it's got almost no hops. So it's not gonna that bitterness is not gonna come out and be gross, mm -hmm. um, and it's warm and and sweet. They tend to use a kind of debased form of creeks there, so they're very sweet and they don't have the sourness. So it's right. really it's more like a, um, like you said, the the eggnog latte. It's sort of in that that family of really sweet winter drinks, and they're right. pretty they're pretty low alcohol. But we have one of these nice uh, Bière de Noëls from Belgium. Uh, I was fortunate went down to Belmont Station. And they actually had some Christmas beers already, and I picked up uh, Delirium Noël. So this is the uh, Hughes, um, the family brewery, mm -hmm. and they make uh, a beer that many people know, Delirium Tremens, which is a strong uh, pale ale. This is a strong, well, I'm pretty sure it's a dark. We're about to find out if memory serves. I hope it's dark because that's how I remember it's it. Opaque bottle, so it's an opaque bottle. It's an opaque bottle, so we don't know we yet. Don't know what we're getting. Uh, but this bad boy is 10%, so that's typical for a Belgian beer. You know, they love them really strong, and I'm pretty sure it's spiced, so we're about to find out how this beer de Noël tastes. Nice. It is vibrantly effervescent. I'm glad I got a goblet, which um, many, of, many of you might have goblets at home. Uh, Belgian beers are quite often uh, quite vibrantly effervescent, and a goblet is a great way to capture uh, these beers, like this one just flowed out. Um, it's got a nice wide, wide mouth, so you can gr grab the beer, and also the wide mouth disperses the head. Mm -hmm. So if you have a narrow mouth, you end up with a massive head. Um, so anyway, we have this goblet, and it is a dark beer. Although so the lightest of the three. Allworth's old brain got one chalk one up <laughs> to my old brain. Oh, wow. That is... Very different aromatics. It is. We are not in England anymore. A dark amber, also with a with a red hue. the The heads have gotten increasingly lighter hued as we've gone along. The anchor was a fairly dark, looked like a porter head, mm -hmm. and the uh, jubel was amber, and this one is just kind of eggshell. Yeah, ecru or something. Yeah, this has a, a wonderful aroma. Yeah, it's. Tons and tons of fruity esters yes. pouring off of that thing. Mm -hmm. And let's... And a hint of spice on the nose. A hint of spice, indeed. Mm. Mm. That is such a different beer. I think this is one of those kind of beers that... Um, I, love to, I love to bring mm. Christmas beers to parties. Uh, uh, Belgian Christmas beers to parties because there's something about them that just tastes Christmassy. Yeah. They just they're sweet and um, 
they're just people are always really impressed. So if you go pick up a bottle of this, uh, San Fuyen has a wonderful Christmas ale mm-hmm. that it's uh, it always impresses people. Um, there's a brewery called Dubuisson, um, which is sold as Escaldes here in the States, and they do a Noel beer that is also really spectacular. I think it's even stronger than this one. Um, these are beers that will really impress people if you take them to your Christmas parties. Um, yeah, this is a this is a big, heavy beer, so it's got lots of base to work with, and it's got a lot of stuff going on. And it's got a lot of stuff going on. Mm. And yet it's not um, a challenging beer. It's com- It's complex, but it's... It's sweet and... Uh, I agree entirely. Yeah, it's a very drinkable beer. In fact, you could get quite drunk <laughs> careful on something like this because you could just be sipping it quite rapidly without knowing because mm-hmm. uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a big beer. It's definitely going to warm you up quite quickly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very sweet and pleasing on the palate. <coughs> and not Excuse sweet me. in a cloying way at all. But um, No, it actually has more um, rounded malt character than most Belgian beers. It's mm-hmm. kind of rare to find a multi character and it's so effervescent that it it um it doesn't track as quite as heavy as as probably would be if the effervescence died down. Yeah. But um the yeah, so there's there is a nice little note of uh multi it's not quite roast, but it's a Maillard kind of characteristic, a brown browning brown sugar quality. Mm-hmm. And um right. Which you as you say is sort of atypical of, of Belgian beer, so that's kind of a nice Yeah. A nice, uh, but I think more typical of these kinds of beers. I think if you want, like the dark ales, mm-hmm. uh, you get the Christmas beers and you get them. And so here, here's the thing. I'm, I'm almost certainly this. I'm almost certain that this is spiced. But do you have? No, would I, you hazard I can't, a guess? No, it's not. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. The spice is sort of subsumed within the whole flavor profile, and I can't pick anything particular out. Yeah. But which is nice for me because I tend to be very overly sensitive to spice, and this doesn't doesn't sort of tickle any of those bad sensories. Yeah, that's how that's how it tracks for me too. Hmm. Oh, that's delightful. That's a nice one. Yeah. Uh, a couple of uh, other winter beers um, that we have here uh, are more local, so we didn't we didn't try them out, but um, the uh, Oakshire Brewing, also in Eugene, has something called the Ill-Tempered Gnome, which is quite good um, if you're local and looking around. Uh, and um, Hopworks uh, Brewery has the Abominable Winter Ale, um, which I'll talk about again uh, brief uh, shortly. Um, so anyway, that's our that's our our sort of uh, foray into winter beers. Any anything else you want to mention before we switch to the mailbag? Not so much. I would just say uh, to to add a a business or economic uh, note to this: um, These didn't used to be a very big player in the the seasonal uh, roundup. You know, people breweries would make these. I think they didn't they didn't expect to sell a ton of them. But more and more, as as uh, the craft brewing segment has grown, seasonality has become a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at the the beers that are they're selling, one of the things that um, sells really well, uh, one of the skews is seasonal mix mix. Uh, 12 packs right. because people are really into seasonal beers. And so I think you're, w- there are a ton of these out there. And we have mostly talked about uh, the beers that are available here in the Northwest or on the West Coast. Um, but I know that all over the country, um, people are making these kinds of beers. Um, they're really common and, and probably you have your own faves. So, um, Yeah, Deschutes and Full Sail, both the Deschutes Jubilee and the Full Sail Vassail. 
uh, are pretty widely distributed. And what's interesting about that, at, apropos of your, your point, uh, is that they, they sell these in six packs and 12 packs. They're not sort of one-off 22 ounce bottles or you know these small. They're, they they go great gang, gangbusters in the winter. They sell a lot of Jubilee on in 12 packs. In fact, when I was at the store looking around, uh, uh, just at the little grocery store, um, in came a guy and carried off a 12 pack of Jubal. So mm-hmm. people wait for these beers and, and they sell them uh, quite rapidly now. Yeah, one interesting thing that um, uh, a, a weird uh, quirk of, of, I don't know, culture or psychology is that these beers do, they're almost all off the shelves by uh, the 2nd of January. Mm-hmm. And I once asked a brewer, I think I was uh, Jamie Emerson at Full Sail, I asked him, why is that? Um, you know, January is the dead of winter, and I still like these beers. Um, I would still love to have these. And he he told me, I think it was Jamie. If it's not Jamie, I apologize. Th- this brewer, whom I believe is Jamie, told me that um, they, on, on January 2nd, after New Year's Day, they can't give these beers away. People just don't buy them. So that's super fascinating. If you've ever wondered, if you're like me and you would like to continue to buy Jubils until it started to actually get warm, mm-hmm. uh, and you've wondered why you can't, it's because... Um, other people don't buy them. So lay in a few 12 packs uh, in late December if you want them to last, because these beers will age. They will keep, yeah. Yeah, they, these, will, these will be fine. They're not very hoppy. They're dark, and they're strong. You don't want to keep them for years, but they will keep you through the spring for sure. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Well, I'll have to keep keep track of what's on the shelves and see if that's still true, see if the, the shelf life is, is longer now. Yes. All right, well, good. Okay, so good hunting for, for winter beers. Try out. Try out your uh, your local versions and let us know um, yeah. what's good out there. Yeah, if you want to let us know, uh, there's a mailbag opportunity. We can uh, read your recommendations, especially if you're in other parts of the country. We would be happy to pass along your insight about the good ones out there. Yeah. Okay, so the mailbag this week uh, consists of um, one letter. Uh, letter comes from uh, email. Uh, email comes from Kyle Navis. Thank you, Kyle, for sending uh, your questions in. Uh Kyle is a grad student at UC San Diego and um, has a few questions, sort of more business econ questions. Um, I'm going to paraphrase uh, Kyle's questions and um, answer the parts that uh, I can. <laughs> yes. So the first the first question Kyle has is he wants to know a little bit about price elasticities as they relate to beer. Are, they, are there separate elasticities between more than just, say, craft and macro lagers? So what he's talking about is the price sensitivity of one beer um, to the presence uh, and prices of another beer is um, is I, what I assume he's talking about. You can have own price elasticities. That's how we sort of measure the sensitivity of demand for a good um, uh, to its price. So how much does demand fall when price goes up? Things like gasoline, where people tend to use uh, a certain amount regardless, tends to be very price inelastic. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't change your gasoline buying habits very much, depending on the price. You complain about it a lot. <laughs> That's why people probably complain about it, because they can't avoid it as much. And then there are other things that can be uh, uh, very price elastic. These tend to be uh, sort of the goods that you um, uh, uh, may just buy on a whim, uh, but aren't sort of part of your staple diet, for example. So maybe, uh, I don't know, um, a particular sort of piece of exotic fish or something like that. It right. might, might be very sensitive. When when the salmon gets really cheap, you buy a lot of salmon. When it's expensive, you, you substitute to other uh, fish. Okay, so that's, that's, that's what he's talking about. Um, the reason this comes up and uh, in his question, I imagine, and, and it's been actually a topic in this pod before, is that uh, 
like for example when this big merger of uh, um, Anheuser-Busch and SAB um, uh, breweries uh, comes about we wonder well how much would will that affect the price of beer um, and I talk a, and I talk a lot about how I think that there's a lot of price competition among craft beer so one of the interesting things that I've always wondered and I don't know um, and I believe this is the origin of the question is how much the price of macro lagers affects the price of um, and demand for craft beer and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And why that's interesting is because it would tell, tell us how much those demands are uh, connected. Right. So is it true that there are craft beer drinkers and then there are macro beer uh, lager drinkers and the two are entirely separate markets? Right. Or how much do those markets overlap? Um, and that's what uh, cross-price elasticity would, would tell us. There was a few years ago I tried to get some scanner data uh, from a local chain um, of stores here, uh, they wouldn't give them to me. But um, I imagine somewhere out, someone, someone out, somewhere out there has uh, scanner data they can look and actually estimate these types of elasticities. So um, I don't know how to answer the question: Are there separate elasticities? There are. You can always measure separate elasticities, and there might even be separate elasticities within the craft beer uh, segment that you could measure. For example, uh, the price elasticity of one style um, to another. Uh, but I actually don't, I haven't seen estimates of this. So if anyone out there has seen cross-price elasticity estimates for the beer market, um, I would be fascinated. And well, I, th I think another wrinkle in this is um, the price elasticity uh, in regional markets because one thing that I hear about all the time is people complaining about the extreme uh, expense of beer in Chicago, for example, mm -hmm. um, and in places on the East Coast. And we don't see that here in Portland. In fact, there was a blogger here who, who was for uh, years doing a thing called the beer, uh, the Portland Beer Price Index. And he went out and he had a pool of beers and he, he watched them quarter by quarter by quarter and see, saw how much they, they went up. Mm -hmm. And um, they actually went down during the Great Depression that we had uh, a few years ago, and have only s lately started to tick up. So it seems like, uh, and this tracks with my anecdotal observation, it's very hard to overprice a beer here. You just you just can't sell it. We have too many good beers. So, yeah, I think that that's and that's uh, that's another aspect of of elasticity, which is you could figure out how elastic one uh, craft beer is to other craft beers in the market. And I think we've reached a point, at least in the Portland beer market that there is a, so much saturation that uh, now I can be very picky about the amazing IPA that I buy. Um, I don't have to pay, I don't know, let's say five ninety nine for a 22-ounce bottle. I can find just as good or something quite comparable for three ninety nine. So I think this price competition is going to become very uh, real and could get kind of severe. And this is actually dovetails into his the next part of his question or another question he has, which is the general question about sort of the craft beer bubble. Um, and we've addressed this before. I don't think there's a craft beer bubble at all. In fact, I think a, mi a billion dollars for Ballast Point shows that uh, demand is still um, forecasted to grow rapidly and people are betting on the, the continued emergence of, of the craft beer market. So I don't think we're anywhere close to a bubble, but we certainly are in a situation where we have a very mature market in certain places in the U.S., like Portland, Oregon, where you have a ton of competition, and that competition is real. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's going to get harder and harder and harder to sell a beer, no matter how good it is, because there are lots and lots of other people making exceptional beers. Um, it's going to be harder to, to price a 
to, to charge a premium for them. So I think price competition is going to get more severe, and that's when scale starts mattering more. And so it'll be interesting to see how it all it all shakes out. And price elasticities are how economists can really get at this stuff. So if anyone has scanner data uh, and wants to share it, or if, if anyone uh, knows about these price elasticities or, or, or studies of price elasticities, it would be very, inter very interesting um, to hear what you find out. And then uh, one other sort of off uh, uh, part of his question, um, he he mentions how horrified he is uh, by the price of a 22-ounce uh, bottle of beer. Um, Particularly the specialty bottles that breweries sell for extreme, yeah, you know, $20, $30. Yeah, he wonders about how, how that's going to – and I think those, that's always going to be an aspect of the market. I don't actually think that there's – because that sort of – um, that gets away from kind of a typical competitive market and you, you create something sort of rare and special um, and then charge a premium for that. I think that's always going to be there and that's always going to be a part of both sort of the marketing aspect of being a brewery, but also just part of the creative aspect and and part of the culture of uh, being a beer geek because you want to always try to find that exceptional rare and something that, that uh, distinguishes itself because, you know, uh, beer is uh, really a mass market product you can keep making essentially the same beer over and over and over again so right. you create this you, rather than un, unlike wine where each each vintage is its own special category uh beer you have to kind of create your own sort of scarcity but i really wanted to to, to sort of big piggyback on that to talk about just one thing which is very interesting and and uh bill knight who was the guy who did the beer price index was always talking about this that 22 ounce bottles of beer tend to be a lot more expensive per ounce than say a six pack of beer yes and if you go to his website it's called it's pub night he has a a uh, wonderful tool called the uh, six-pack equivalent uh, calculator, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah and, and you can sit there and do it. And it's it's almost always true that you pay a premium if you buy beer in a 22-ounce bottle, which is... Sometimes a substantial premium. Sometimes a substantial premium, which is fascinating to an economist because, of course, it's cheaper for the breweries uh, typically to, to package in a 22-ounce bottle of beer. Generally, the rule is the bigger the package, the, the less cost per ounce to the... Uh, to the brewer or whatever. The producer. Uh, to the producer. Uh, so how it is that they can charge this uh, this premium for 20-ounce bottles is something that fascinates me, that somehow the market doesn't interpret it the same way just as a price per ounce, I suppose. I think um, it's because humans look at it and they think it's a one beer. And they look at a six-pack and they think that's six beers. And so one beer is... You know, as long as it's cheaper than six beers, it somehow works out. I think there's a I think like a crude behavior. It's probably exactly that kind of crazy, convoluted, nonsensical thinking that this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, no, I, the, I know. Never want. I never want to think that there's something irrational going on. So there must be something that the way that you, I think you're right, and that there's a way that people perceive see these packages as opposed to a six-pack. because I have seen you shake your head sadly when I've offered these kinds of uh, analyses before. But clearly it's a phenomenon, so there has to be some reason, and it probably is something uh, along these lines. Yeah, and at least here you can you can sit there in the in the counter at your grocery store, and there'll be a 22-ounce bottle, and then there'll be a six-pack of exactly the same beer. And the 22-ounce bottle may be $4, and six-packs might be $8, $8 or something like right. that. And you... And, and, and people keep buying the 22 ounces. You think, well, what is that? 
So anyway, that I, I don't have an answer for that. E economics doesn't have a good answer for that. Uh, it really has to be the psychology of the thing, I suppose. Yep. Uh, I would be fascinated to, to hear any other insights that people might have or theories that people might have. Yeah, that's a good one. That's send us your theories. Why why are twenty? Why do people pay five dollars for a twenty-two when they can get a six-pack for a per ounce way way cheaper? Yeah. Okay. So uh, and and I think that six packs are much more flexible, right? A 22 ounce bottle of beer is a lot of beer if you're the one drinking it. Uh, and if it's not very good. Especially if it's a big beer and not very good, but a six pack, you can sort of, you can control your quantity much, much, uh, much more finely. So anyway, yep. uh, thank you very much, Kyle, for your uh, email. And um, uh, for those, the rest of you, please uh, send emails in the future to uh, the underscore beer axe at yahoo.com. Okay, so the next segment Regular exciting. feature now we're going to introduce into our pod is the Beer Sherpa Recommends. An exciting new segment. That's right, an exciting new segment. Uh, this is something that Jeff started uh, a while back on his blog. Uh, why don't you uh, tell us something about the origins of the, of the term Beer Sherpa and yeah. what it is you're conveying? Well, you know, I think we can all be Beer Sherpas for each other. There's just too many beers out there. There's 3,500 breweries, and each brewery is making something on the order of, uh, you know, 30 or 40 beers, you're just talking about an insane number of beers. And it's impossible. There was a time when a person could taste all the different beers in, a, in, a, in the marketplace and make a judgment about them. But now it's impossible. So uh, I introduced a thing on my blog called The Beer Stripper Recommends. And it was just whenever I came across a, a beer that I thought was really spectacular that people should know about, uh, I would let them know. And I would talk about why I thought that beer was good. And, um, you know, you should try these beers. Uh, I think they're really good. And I tried to... You know, I tried to not only select the super obscure, but sometimes maybe the under-the-radar beers that were right under our nose that, that uh, deserve a second look. Yeah, so we, we didn't really establish any ground rules here. Uh, we're both going to uh, recommend a beer um, related to the, uh, the topic of the pod. So today we're going we're gonna to recommend um, winter beers. Uh, I th I s my take is that I'm going to just recommend a beer that maybe you haven't tried that I enjoy. That's essentially it. Uh, I'll try to stick to stuff that I think is reasonably widely uh, distributed, at, if possible. Um, but of course, we're talking about craft beer, and craft beer is kind of local. So. Yep. Uh, so why don't you go ahead? What, what's your What's your recommendation for this week? Well, my recommendation for the next few weeks or the next few pods, I'm going to go back into the uh, the memory banks and mention a beer that I had on my travels, uh, which will give us an opportunity to at least spread. Uh, our recommendations around the country a, a bit. Uh -huh. uh, and this last leg that I was on was through uh, the great American South, and I had a wonderful time. And one of the stops was in Tampa, Florida, mm -hmm. at a new brewery called uh, Hidden Springs, which I think opened in, in uh, June. A couple of young guys there started that brewery. They were home brewers, um, and they just recently got this open just on the kind of outskirts of, of downtown Tampa, which is it's, it's a funny place. Um, uh, you cross some kind of invisible line and you're no longer, it, all the buildings look the same, but now it's like the bad side of town. And they're wow. just on the other that other side. Uh, I think it will not be the bad side of town for very long because once you open a brewery, people go there. And when I was there, it was totally packed. And breweries are great for uh, redeveloping things. But for that, for now, it means that they have cheap rent, so that's good for them. 
and they make really, really good beer. I was incredibly impressed. Um, they, they have a whole lineup of, of wonderful beer. I didn't have a single beer that, that, that was not impressive. And these are impressive not by Tampa standards, but by national standards. They were just really good beers. Um, they had uh, two beers that really stood out. Their IPA was great. And I think um, Northwesterners would love, love this IPA. It was really familiar. And I talked to them about the challenges for them as a new brewery. They didn't have a hop contract. They were buying hops on the spec market. And they're way down in Tampa, Florida, very far from the Pacific Northwest. So it was hard to, hard to do that. And they, so they were, I think, not getting the best hops. They were getting, you know, hops they could just find. And they were still, they made it great. A wonderful IPA that was very modern, um, super saturated flavor and aroma. Lovely, lovely beer. Awesome. Uh, but the but the beer that really impressed me the most, um, which was perfect for Tampa, um, and would be perfect for a Tampa winter. A Tampa winter beer. Uh, yeah, so Tampa winter beer is the uh, Berliner Weisse that they had, uh-huh. which was made with tropical fruit. I can't remember which tropical fruits. They had passion fruit and mango, maybe. I don't know. But it had a um, uh, more than one tropical fruit in it. I think this is a rotating thing. I think probably they 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 mix up what they had, but it was a really nice kettle soured Berliner Weisse um and it was a f- on a hot sweaty Tampa winter night. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was perfect. Well, this is a good point because this is, we have a very northern bias here when we're talking about the cold, dark days of winter. Yeah. Uh, that's true not everywhere. Right. Uh, so, some winters, you know, Phoenix, Arizona and Tampa, Florida. The winters stay kind of warm, so your winter, your version of a winter beer might be quite different. Yeah, and more power to you. So Hidden Springs in Tampa. Hidden Springs in Tampa, Florida, and go for the Blunder Weiser, or the IPA, or the IPA, two for one. Okay, so my my recommendation uh, is uh, a different type of uh, winter ale. This one um, is from Full Sail, so Full Sail is pretty widely distributed. This one is. Uh, um, well, no, it's actually, I thought it was part of their Brewmaster Reserve series. It's not, but it's, uh, I don't think they put it in 12-ounce bottles. I think they keep it in the 22 ounces, so um, you have to look there for it. Uh, but it's called uh, Wreck the Halls. So they have Vassail, which is what we mentioned before, some little Jubilee ale, sort of a standard a standard uh, uh, winter ale in that vein. What, what Wreck the Halls is is really a, a, a winter IPA. I'm pretty sure this is a John Harris beer. I was about to say the same thing. I think this is this is a creation of John Harris. This is a true hophead uh, who used to be the brewmaster at Full Sail and now um, is the uh, owner and brewer at Ecliptic, which is a new brewery, new-ish, actually not that new now. It's a couple, few years old now, uh, brewery in, in, in uh, Portland, Oregon. Wreck the Halls is uh, the, the hophead winter beer yeah uh, and that's which is exactly why i like it right uh for me it's 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 wonderful it's um it's sort of a a little bit more malt forward medium bodied uh kind of red red in color if i IPA, remember kind of red in color i don't think it's spiced but i i have a feeling that he uses a bit of or they use a bit of uh, rye ah. to give it a little just a little bit of uh of uh, sort of a spicy character. Um, I'm very sensitive to rye, so if they use rye, it's it's probably um, a very light touch because um, I tend to tend to to sense the the soap um, uh, soapy aspects. I get I I find rye beers tend to be quite soapy. Um, so uh, it's it's one of my my favorite beers. Uh, full stop. Um, and it's sort of the perfect way to keep enjoying your IPAs through the dark days of winter. And a longtime fan favorite here in Portland. People uh, love this. Have, have long loved this beer. It's, it's yeah. Uh, I, I, I eagerly anticipate the yeah. release of Wreck the Halls. Um, and in fact, I went out. I had to. I had to go 
wasn't in my local store, so I had to go to my local bottle shop and uh, and and stock up on a few bottles so I can hoard them. And, there you go. And have them. So wreck the halls uh, by full sale is my uh, my recommendation. All right. Okay. Well, uh, that con- this brings us to the end of another uh, edition of the Beervana podcast. Um, as always, you can reach us. Um, there's a number of means we've been trying to uh, push the, the mailbag, so please uh, send your email uh, questions, comments into the underscore beer acts at yahoo.com. You can also find Jeff blogging at the Beervana blog. Um, he also has a Facebook uh, page called the Beervana blog Facebook page and at All About Beer. Uh, and you can be found blogging uh, frequently. Avidly at uh, your blog, Beeronomics, or or or, or occasionally, let's occasionally. say, uh, occasionally, uh, and I tend to save all my good stuff for the pod. That's right. And anything else you want to plug? And what do you what do you, anything else you have going on? Uh, nope. All right. So uh, thank you very much for joining us for this edition of the Beer Vanna Podcast. Uh, I'm going to go out. Let's see. We've got three beers in front of us. Um, I'm going to take the Deschutes Jubileo. I will go with the Delirium uh, Noel. I figured you would. I was being polite. Oh well, I, <laughs> I, I would. I would. I would have considered going for the the Christmas beer. The uh, Anchor Christmas beer is very nice this Actually, year too. The, they're all they're all three great beers. Yes. So, um, you can't go wrong with any of these. You chose wisely. All right. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers to you, Patrick. And happy holidays. Yes. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Festivus. Whatever. Whatever you have. Festivus for the rest of us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>